welcome to Human Rights Unscripted, a podcast run by law students at American University Washington College of Law. My name is Lucia Canton, I'm the podcast producer, and I'm here with our podcast editors. I'm Galen Molina. And I'm Cobra Vavaturk. Human Rights Unscripted takes a deep dive into several topics within the human rights field, told candidly by professors and other professionals in this field. Thank you guys for tuning in to our first episode, and we hope you enjoy. Macarena Asayas is the faculty director of the Center for Human Rights and Humanitarian Law here at WCL. She teaches in the areas of gender and sexuality, family law, comparative law, and international human rights. Her main areas of research are the role of sexual orientation and gender identity in family law and comparative regulations of sex as an economic activity. Professor Sayas has taught feminist jurisprudence and human rights in different universities across Latin America and Europe, including the University of Chile Law School, where she was a faculty member before coming to WCL. She has given her expert testimony on issues of sexual orientation and gender identity before the Constitutional Court of Colombia and the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. Today, Professor Sayas sits down with us to talk about her experience working directly on the Karen Atalava and Daughters vs. Chile case and the strong influence it had on international human rights law and on her views both professionally and personally. We hope you enjoy. Uh, uh, case in any way. This was a case of a woman who had uh, lost the t- custody of her three children because she was living living with her partner, who happened to be a lesbian, right? And um, so it was a very straightforward case of somebody who had, this has happened to her, and that's it. But the conversations in 2004, in Latin America, there were very few LGBT rights organizations, and this was not, and Jan Satala was not really involved in any LGBT rights organizations either. She had um, um, come out, uh, out as a lesbian very, not long before the case. And, and basically that was ha- what has triggered the custody struggle, basically. And um, so we had to make a lot of sort of decisions, and it was three organizations in taking the case. Uh, a lot of, uh, you know, coming back and forth and getting to know each other and making, making a team that was sort of like really um, cohesive, that we got along. And, uh, and it's, you know, lawyers, we have big personalities, so it was a lot of like big personalities there as well. And, uh, and, and it's a human, human rights cases are always difficult. But I remember one of the things that has changed tremendously from that time till now is the first times I started talking about the case in 2004, 2005, in the United States, in law, law, for, to law students, many students would say, well, that's not a really human rights case. That's a family law case, straightforward. So this idea that because it was a family law, it was not a human rights case, it was super, it was so shocking to hear it over and over and over and over. And I don't think that I would find that and as a matter of fact, I have not gotten that reaction for many years now when I talk about this case in, in law school. Even before, I think, we had the decision. So even by 2010, the perspective on these issues had changed tremendously. And, um, and so I didn't have that reaction anymore. When they were asking you this, like back in 2004, that were saying that it was a family law case more so, what would your response be? Well, um, so first, I, because it, it was also something, it was, it, it, to us it was a test case also. When I talked about this case, 
because we didn't know what the reaction of the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights was going to be, every time I spoke about this case, it was a test on reaction on different people who knew something about law but were not experts in human rights and were not activists on LGBT rights or on women's rights or anything, uh, what they would say. And so my reaction would be to sort of push a little bit more on why would there be a division of why it had to be either one or the other uh, as if it's not possible to have human rights violations in custody cases. So basically what I was getting was a uh, strong conviction that custody battles are based on the best interest of the child and whatever courts think that it's best for children should go, should be allowed. And, and that is very much what we see in custody cases in the U.S. anyway. Uh, prior to having a better understanding of sexual orientation or even race, the categories, certain categories could be used as um, factors to decide custody cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas today we have a better understanding that it's not the ca- any category, but it's how a person relates to his or her child or how that specific characteristic can affect or have an impact in that child in particular. But it cannot be something that it's blamed for to, to the person when it's the social environment what makes the child more vulnerable because the social environment is uh, um, discriminatory of a particular trait, either race or sexual orientation or what have you. But by then, it was very clear that if I would have, uh, you know, narrated the story, but it would have changed sexual orientation for race, everybody would have thought in the United States that that was unacceptable. But I changed race for sexual orientation, and many people thought, well, this is just a custody case, and judges had all the right to make that decision based on the best interest of the child. So that was, I thought, was really interesting, and how today, still I think many people may think that it's better for children to be with heterosexual families or what have you, but they, I don't think that we're, I think in that moment, both I would say in Latin America and in the United States, in many places in the United States, where people would not say out loud, no, you, you have to take custody, you have to take children away uh, from a mother or father because of their sexual orientation. I think that that would be sort of again an acceptable uh, argument. Uh. And how did you start with the case? Were you working with an organization that focused on LGBT issues? or No, just... well, it was not an organization that focused on LGBT issues. It was an organization I still work with them called uh, Public Liberties. By then it was called Lawyers for Public Liberties, and it was sort of like a um, mini ACLU, something like that, that we founded in Chile many years ago uh, in the late 90s with a group of attorneys in Chile um, in order to really bring cases not only to the inter-American system but to fight for um, civil rights in in Chile. And uh, I was already, by 2004, I was already uh, at WCL and I was already living in the United States and I got a call from a colleague um, telling me about the case and saying, well, she just lost custody of her three children in the Supreme Court and... Uh, 
we're thinking about sending this case to submitting this case to the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights, would you be okay with taking the case or, or joining the team? And, and so you would be the person who would move the case in the United States. And um, I thought it was fascinating case. I said, okay, let's do it. Um, but what is really interesting also is how my own perception of how strategic or how you win a case uh, changed. Because when I first heard the case, even prior to that phone call, I was um, talking to a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, who was involved in the litigation before the Supreme Court, and was telling me about this case. And I said, well, this is a pretty simple case. She just have to change her mind, quote unquote, and wait six months and go back to uh, the family court and say, I was confused, I'm no longer a lesbian, and I want my kids back. And it was 2004, so I figured, you know, we had even in Chile this structure where um, there's this idea, this glorification of motherhood, where mothers had primary um, custody of children by default. So it was a, so which made the case even more um, blatant as a discrimination because the fact that she would not have the custody of her children meant that she was per se an unfit uh, parent. It mm-hmm. was just, it's it, it really difficult for, by then it was very difficult for mothers to uh, lose custody of their children. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I said this without knowing the case, sort of like in a conversation, uh, you know, over drinks or something like that. And that's it. That's all she needs to do, period. And then I received this case, you know, and I connect the dots that this is the same case that I had been, you know, talking about with my colleague and friend. And um, and so I, I take the case. Then I meet uh, Judge Atala prior to our first hearing before the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights. And that's where I think that uh, the first, I would say, personal transformation came from this case. Because hearing Judge Atala and her integrity um, really made me think how ingrained we have this glorification of motherhood where I thought, well, if she really wants her kids back, she just needs to lie. And um, and during the preparation for the hearing, which we did here at, at WCL, um, the whole afternoon, and that's when I met her, and it was very emotional, very difficult. And I heard her there, and I, then I heard her the next day at the hearing, and, and she says, when she starts the hearing, she says something like, my name is uh, Karen Atala, I'm a judge, I'm of Palestinian descent, I'm a lesbian, and I've been, um, and, and as a judge, I learned that I had to always live by the truth. And for telling the truth, my kids were taken away from me. And at that moment, something really sort of, it, it, shocked, it shook me emotionally. I mean, I'm sitting mm-hmm. there as a lawyer, and I'm putting, you know, my lawyer face of no emotions, but it's until this day I can remember that moment vividly of, of shame, of, of me, of thinking, well, it was as simple as lying to get the kids back without thinking that being a mother doesn't necessarily mean that you fight nail and, how do you say in English, nail and yeah, something else, tooth, tooth, tooth and nail, or yeah. <laughs> something like that. You don't fight for physical proximity towards your children, you fight to be a parent in the terms that you think that it's correct to be a parent. And for her, being 
you know, showing integrity and being truthful to herself, to her identity, to who she was before her kids. Because one of the things that was very hurtful to me over and over is listening, hearing from different people the idea that Yachatala was herself very selfish for putting her kids into this situation of struggle um, and that she should have just kept her sexual orientation quiet to herself and that she was really, that that in itself had shown that she was not a good mother. And my frustration for not being able to convey that my opinion had changed and I thought that this was her way of being a good mother by showing integrity in front of her kids. And how this, you know, touches in that, this gender stereotypes where we have this idea that mothers are meant to physically protect their kids no matter what. And that fathers are the ones who will pass on the values of honesty and truth and sort of like those things that are good for citizenship and mothers will will not pass on the values will pass on the care the physical care no matter what and and this is was a case that challenged precisely that so just not only to me started it, it ended up being a case not only about sexual orientation but it was a case about parenthood about gender stereotypes about the meaning of motherhood about understanding and respecting different ways of being a mother so to me personally, had a huge transformation, I think, and an and important lesson for my own life, I think. You know, I think the more critical we get, more theoretical we get as lawyers, it's um, it, it inevitably kind of has this layer over your life as oh, well, absolutely. Where, you, where you think and yeah. you're like, oh, life decisions, how yeah. does this affect your case? Yeah. <laughs> like, how has, I guess, your focus in the law affected, or this case affected sort of your career and decision. What I think though it has really um, done in me is that it has, I think that when I look at my personal history and my family history, I think that it was inevitable that I would do women's rights at the end because the, his, the story of my family is marked by strong, powerful women who have suffered by the patriarchy and the subordination that has been normalized throughout history. And, uh, and I've, I've, I have been fortunate to have a wonderful uh, life and a wonderful childhood <clears throat> and raised by parents who are married for more than 50 years by now and that who love each other and laugh uh, together every day. Um, but they themselves had really broken dysfunctional families that were crossed by really strong women who mm -hmm. suffered um, difficult things. And my admiration for those women and for the women who raised me, my mom and my nanny, um, um, who was, I had the fortune to have two very strong women in my life as my mothers, was just... Um, really something that, of course, I never conscientiously thought, oh, that, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fight for them. I'm going to fight for the rights of domestic workers who are really invisible 
not only in Latin America, but around the world, or I'm going to fight for sex workers based on the lives that I know of sex workers uh, personally. No, I, I didn't make those connections, but I think that, you know, it's inevitable that at the end of the day, your personal life has, like, takes you to a place where you feel that your life has some meaningful mm-hmm. um, on your daily life, <laughs> your work day has some meaning. Um, so I think that that's what I would say that the connection is. But I've been really fortunate not to change. I mean, I it's I, I speak really negatively about marriage um, all the time. <laughs> and I'm happily married uh, for many, many years. And my parents have been married for many, many years. And I think I've been not doing a good job at conveying what I really want to say, which is not that I'm against marriage. What I am is against the legal systems assigning rights and obligations based on marriage. I think that marriage is a very powerful right um, of passage. I think that sociologically has a huge um, meaning for different societies and in different communities. I think that it's important that we have uh, ways of, of telling society that this is the person or the persons or, you know, that I have decided to build my business, my personal emotional business mm-hmm. with, you know. But I think that it's just wrong and it has more, uh, it produces more uh, negative effects in the most vulnerable people when we assign these rights and obligations to marriage rather than look for other formal markers that might be more today may have more make more sense that can be cohabitation can be you know sort of like a checklist of things that happen that show that there is mutual support um, and, and through that assign rights and obligations so, as a bunch of future lawyers going into a field that we will be dealing with clients with very sensitive issues, um, I'm curious, I remember once in class you said it was important not to forget that we're working with actual humans and we're working with victims and not to desensitize or dehumanize cases or the clients. I'm wondering how you find that balance of remembering that these are actual people but also not bringing it home with you every single day. So I think that to me it's much easier than many, many people who work with, um, for example, with immigrants or do refugee law or who are um, working in domestic violence settings. Because the cases that I take, first of all, the majority of my life is theoretical and teaching uh, allows you to have a, that sense of detachment mm-hmm. where I read a lot of things that are horrible and I theorize and I think over and over on how to make the lives of people who um, have problems a little bit better or what would be the direction that law, that different legal systems should take. But I am not in the contact of looking at uh, in the eyes to people who have really broken lives on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So I think that for me it's it's simpler than for most people. I am basically, maybe I, I have chosen sort of like the easiest route um, in the sense that I don't have direct contact mm-hmm. with, with things all the time. And, and the few 
clients that I have um, are already gone through a, a long process of local litigation, so they've already been, um, they are less broken, I think, by the time that I met, I meet them, mm -hmm. um, because they've had to develop sort of like this thick skin, they, they are the people who are really the warriors. That was our discussion with Professor Saez. Uh, thank you for joining in today and please stay tuned for our next episodes. <laughs>